I grew up in a small town in the Ottawa Valley, and if there was one thing I loved as much, no, even more than movies, it was comic books. I didn't discriminate much in terms of what I bought in those days. I read it all. Superheroes, War, Archie, Funny Animal, Richie Rich, Gold Key stuff, anything. And every once in a while, a movie would be released, and a comic book adaptation of it would hit the shelves. And where I grew up, with no local theater, it was quite likely that if there was a movie out that I really wanted to see, I would probably have read the comic version of it before I would see it in a cinema. What always struck me about these film adaptations were the quality of the art and the differences in the script. Usually, the comic book adaptations were not written based on the final script of the film, but an earlier draft, which meant that in the comic you could see scenes that wouldn't be in the final movie. I always found that neat. Anyone who read the Star Wars comic version knew all about Big's Darklighter and his relationship with Luke, in a way that an average filmgoer did not. That sort of thing. And I never felt that the art was done by the very best comic artists, and only very rarely would it be done by any of my favorites. A possible exception to that was when Conan the Barbarian was adapted from film to comic, and Marvel used their regular Conan team to do the comic version. The result made it look more like a Conan comic book than a film adaptation, and I loved that. It was my enjoyment of these adaptations that led me to getting into Classics Illustrated, and the Marvel classic line they had in the 1970s, and reading those got me interested in the films that were made from those novels. Films like The Three Musketeers, or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or The Time Machine, or Robinson Crusoe. It's funny to track some aspects of my life as a cinephile back to my lifelong concurrent love of comic books, but that's exactly the kind of connection you find exists sometimes when you love old movies. Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 23. You mean episode 2 of season 2. Like I said. Okay, carry on. And today we will be discussing another film that was specifically requested by a listener. Oh, yeah. In fact, this is the first request we ever received. We have been sitting on this one for a while, it's fair to say, but better late than never. That's what I always say. You do always say that. And it's actually just really awesome that people reach out to us and say... Hey, here's a movie I like, and I'd love to hear you guys talk about it. Right? And that's why we're doing it as this month's theme. And it's already going fairly well. Last week's episode on Tarzan did great. Lots of listens in the first week and some positive comments. You and I were talking about how it was kind of a difficult episode to do. Well, we hadn't done one in a while. Right. Our last actual film review episode was Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, and then we did two special episodes, and then an off week. So by the time we did Tarzan, we were basically a month out of practice in doing that kind of thing. And it took us a while to get back into uh, the swing of things. The swing of things? With Tarzan? (laughs) Good one. (laughs) Yeah. We are all about the dad joke level puns here. So what do we have up today? Today we are looking at a film noir starring George Raft that comes requested by one of our most dedicated and enthusiastic listeners, Robin Saunders. George Raft? We've talked about him before. Mm -hmm. Wasn't he the dude that passed on all the movies that Bogart took and became a big star with? That is the guy. 
I can't wait to see the sort of film he made after passing on the Maltese Falcon. Well, today you will, as we look at 1949's awesomely titled Johnny Allegro. That is an awesome title. But first, some business. While you're here, please take a moment to hit like, subscribe, and share. Or give us some stars Mm -hmm. or whatever. Just do the thing. Send a text to someone and say, oh, by the way, check out this podcast. That works too. And as always, hit us up on the socials. Ah, the socials. Tell them, Sammy. You can find us on the Facebook. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. Or the Instagram. At I Love Old Movies, the podcast. El Twitter. At Ilom podcast. Or send us a good old-fashioned email. I Love Old Movies, the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. So last week we saw some huge losses from the world of cinema with both legendary director Peter Bogdanovich and even more legendary actor Sidney Poitier passing away. Both men left behind a fantastic body of work, certainly worthy of remembering if you are already a fan, and more than worth finding and watching if you have never seen them. Oh, I'll say. Do you have any recommendations for people? Like, if someone is seeing their names in a news feed but doesn't really know their work or hasn't seen it, what would you recommend? Well, Sidney Poitier had so many great films. A friend of mine posted on Facebook that his favorite was To Sir With Love, which, you know, as a teacher, isn't one of mine. But I totally respect his choice, and I see why people love that film. My favorites with Sidney Poitier are The Defiant Ones, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And of the three, In the Heat of the Night is my favorite. But all three do a great job of exploring themes of racism, inequality, and prejudice. And Poitier is incredible in them all. What about Bogdanovich? That's a much easier choice for me. While there are some fine films in his career, nothing touches, in my opinion, The Last Picture Show. An artistically wonderful achievement that looks at a crumbling, disintegrating way of life in rural America. I sort of can't believe it wasn't on the curriculum when I was in film school. Now, due to its date of release, it's unlikely we will ever talk about it at length on this show, but definitely. Please just know that I give this one a watch and check it out if you never have. All right. Definitely a call to action to watch some more movies. Oh, yeah. And that's what we like to get across here. You bet. So, Johnny Allegro. Shall we? We shall. The director of Johnny Allegro is Ted Tetzlaff. Now, Ted was born into the film industry, with his father being the movie stuntman Teddy Tetzlaff Sr. This led to Tetzlaff Jr. becoming a known and respected cinematographer who worked on over 50 films. After transitioning into directing, he worked on 11 films, including Riff Raff in 1947, Johnny Allegro in 1949, and Son of Sinbad in 1955. His career spanned over 33 years, and he's probably best remembered for his film The Window in 1949. He died in 1995 at the age of 91. The writer is Guy Endor. He moved to Hollywood in 1935. His career lasted 34 years and he was able to earn 21 credits, five of which were earned in his first year of work. Endor's preferred area of film centered around stories with supernatural elements, and he ended up making a name for himself by working on films such as Mark of the Vampire in 1935. He had a relatively successful career up until the 1950s when he was affected by the House Un-American Activities Committee investigations. Despite not being a part of the Hollywood Ten, and never officially being subpoenaed by the HUAC, Endor was blacklisted. 
Endor was best known for Mad Love 1935 and Whirlpool 1950, and was nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay of Story of G.I. Joe 1945. His last credit was the made-for-TV movie Fear No Evil 1969. He died in 1970 at the age of 68. After failed attempts to find success as a professional boxer, where he lost by knockout far too often, as a minor league baseball player, good glove, no bat, it was as a dancer and later an actor that George Raft climbed the ladder of fame. During his time as a dancer, he had many fans and admirers, and he was known in particular for the speed and precision of his Charleston. But it was during this time, mostly in the 1920s, that Raft formed many friendships and associations with a variety of gangsters, mobsters, and criminals, which led to many complications down the road. His success as a dancer on the speakeasy circuit led him to Broadway and then to Hollywood, where he transitioned to a career in film, specializing early on in playing, you guessed it, dancers, or criminals, or criminals that were also dancers. And in his early career, he worked with actors like Spencer Tracy, James Cagney, and Eddie Cantor. But it was his role in 1931's Scarface that really cemented his position as an actor on the rise. Despite there being really no appreciation of his talent as an actor, he wasn't, seemed to ha he wasn't seen to have much, and in fact didn't even enjoy acting very much, preferring just to play himself on screen. Raft signed a contract with Columbia, and started turning out films at an incredible rate in the 1930s and 40s, until things slowed down, his films consistently disappointing at the box office, and roles became smaller by the 1950s, with some television work beginning to happen. In 1955, he bought a stake in the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas, but due to his gangster connections, he was initially denied a gaming license by the state commission. His roles after that involved playing a gangster in Some Like It Hot, a casino owner in Ocean's Eleven, and eventually just turning up as himself in a few films, I suppose giving him what he wanted all along. But more interesting than the films Raft made were the ones he turned down. As early as 1933, Raft was placed on suspension by Columbia for refusing to perform in The Story of Temple Drake, and then again in Bolero, which he eventually made after holding it for rewrites. And he was suspended again for refusing to be in a film called St. Louis, prompting Raft to be called Hollywood's authority on walkouts. But most stinging for him must have been to pass on both High Sierra, All Through the Night, and The Maltese Falcon, all of which were critical films in the rise to superstardom of his replacement, Humphrey Bogart. While Raft is thought to have even turned down the Rickroll in Casablanca, this does not seem to be supported by Warner Brothers' internal memos, which do not suggest that he was ever actually offered the role, although he was considered. And as icing on the cake, Raft turned down double indemnity, denying him the chance to be in one of the greatest film noirs ever made. Raft was known as a difficult performer to work with, and came to blows with his co-actors on more than one occasion. Thinking of Raft having fistfights with Edward G. Robinson and Peter Lorre almost seems comical, but it happened. This quarrelsome attitude and frequent walkouts and refusals leave Raft a legacy that not many admire. After many more difficulties caused by his organized crime connections, including con convictions for income tax evasion and being barred from entering England, Raft died in 1980 at the age of 79. To summarize how low he had fallen from being one of Hollywood's top-paid stars of the 1930s, all of his remaining personal effects were gathered and sold as a single lot for $800. Had you only ever seen Nina Fosh in Johnny Allegro, it would be understandable if you only thought of her as a less talented, more aloof version of Elizabeth Scott. 
But once you've looked at the life story and career of this Dutch-born actress, it's easy to see how significant she was. Signed to a contract with Columbia when she was only 19 years old, her first film saw her co-starring with Bella Lugosi in The Return of the Vampire, and followed that with Cry of the Werewolf and several other hastily made B-films, but it was in the late 40s with a string of film noir pictures that really put her on the acting map. It was during this time that she also made her Broadway debut in John Loves Mary, as well as appearing on Broadway and in Stratford productions of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The 50s were a huge decade for her, co-starring in Best Picture winner An American in Paris, playing Moses' adopted mother in The Ten Commandments, getting a Best Supporting Actress nomination for Executive Suite, and then having a role in Spartacus. By the 1960s, she was appearing in fewer films and more television episodes, but her big career move at this time was into education, teaching acting classes at the University of Southern California, the School of Cinematic Arts, and the American Film Institute. Some of her students, you may wonder? Nobody big. Just legendary singer Rod Stewart, screen legend Julie Andrews, and sitcom star John Ritter. Still turning up in TV and smaller films right up until 2007, Fosh passed away in 2008 at the age of 84. One of the things I love about doing this show is learning about performers like this, who maybe I see them and don't particularly love their performance in something, but then find out all these cool things about them. A 40-year career as an acting teacher at USC is amazing. Yeah, and she also studied under Stella Adler and was married to James Lipton. Wow. It's like she spent her whole career surrounded by legend in the acting field, and she was never really out of work. She had 172 credits on IMDb, which represents a huge career. Some films have production stories that are as interesting as the films themselves. And some films are just written and cast and produced and released, and that's that. Johnny Allegro falls into the latter category. The film had gone through a few name changes, first known as The Big Jump, and then Hounded. Ooh, Hounded is good. Yeah. And it was George Raff's first film at Columbia since 1935. I'm a bit surprised he didn't walk out on this one. Well, the character would have appealed to Raft. Despite being a gangster, he's all these other things that made him way more sympathetic. He's much more of a hero. And that's what he liked playing, since that's how he saw himself. And was the film a hit? Not especially. The film was made towards the end of Raft's big decline in the 1940s. So aside from being the king of walkouts, he had also become the king of diminishing returns. It's always a long way down from the top. It sure is. What did the review say at the time? Well, they weren't overly kind. The LA Times called it a B picture and said of Raft, he does well enough in a routine way, although there is not too much illumination in his performance. <laughs> okay, that's polite. The New York Times was even less generous. Nothing with any vague resemblance to vivid acting is contributed by Mr. Raft, who has become one of the most indifferent and comatose actors extant. Oof. Mm. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam? Okay, we have a 6.3 on IMDb. Mm -hmm. The audience score is 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Ooh. The film won no awards, mm. and it can be watched for free on YouTube.
We open on the Columbia logo, and then we see a still of George Raft looking all forlorn. And we get this weird TV show-esque shot of the other actors introducing them. It's more like the start of Friends or some primetime TV drama from the 1980s, St. Elsewhere or something. Friends are great. I'd like to have one someday. You'll get there, kid. We see a flower shop in a busy hotel, all the hustle and bustle and gangster-looking guys strolling around in the lobby. Everyone does look kind of gangstery. This has to be the sketchiest hotel in town. It's like that John Wick hotel, but with gangsters instead of assassins. That would be amazing. A sketchy guy is staking out the lobby, clearly waiting for someone. A femme fatale makes him and walks over to Johnny Allegro, the florist, and says, pretend you know me. He's no dummy, so he plays along. And this is how we meet Glenda Chapman. The stakeout guy asks the front desk clerk who this Allegro character is. Clearly he's messed up with the wrong dame. In movies like this, ladies are frequently dames. But not dames like Dame Judi Dench. We mean the no-good kind of dame. Johnny quickly susses out that the guy waiting for Glenda is a cop, and she is in some sort of law trouble. Somehow she gets back to her room without being arrested, and she and Johnny start playing the long game. Weeks later, Allegro has been sending orchids up to Chapman every day. But some dirty-looking hood comes to the flower shop and wants to speak. This guy, Schultze, seems to know Johnny, but he calls him Johnny Rock. Schultze's a copper, see, and he knows all about Johnny Rock. He used to work for the mob, got arrested, and did ten years before escaping from Sing Sing. Then Allegro got into the war, serving in the OSS, no less, and performed feats of incredible bravery. He was a war hero. And then he retired into civilian life as a humdrum hotel florist. But hiding the secret, he's a convicted felon and escaped prisoner. Like I said. Schultze wants Johnny's help. He's a T-man, and he wants info on Chapman. She's big trouble, see? No real deal is made between them, but the implication is that if Johnny helps, then the Treasury agent won't turn him into the cops. But also, what's the deal with the girl? Johnny is told nothing, and he's got to go into this blind. Now, by this point, Johnny and Chapman are a bit lovey-dovey. A bit kissy-wissy. A bit hanky-panky. A bit cops spying on them in the hotel lobby. And this is a problem, since Johnny needs to get her out of the hotel so she can get wherever she's going, and he can tag along and get the info for Schultze. Johnny pulls a fast one to sneak her out through the basement, but the fat cop from the lobby intercepts him, and Johnny punches him out and shoots him in the gut. She guides him to a private airfield, and back at the hotel, Schultze is on the scene, and the cop gets up. A faked death. But it was even photographed by the newspapers to sell the narrative. Wait, what's going on? At the airfield, Glenda wants to leave Johnny behind, but he insists on going with her, since he just, you know, killed a cop for her. She's not sure, but she agrees, and they fly to Florida, and are met by a chauffeured car, and then it's onto a boat for the next leg of the journey. The boat takes them to Palm Island, and there's a mansion. Glenda makes herself quite at home. You know, George Raft has wonderful posture. Like, when he walks across the set, there is some authority in his stride. That's literally all you like about him, isn't it? So far, yeah. And in a large, wonderful room, a trophy room, a museum, is an older man who welcomes her home. Morgan Vallon, her husband. It seems Glenda has a lot of guy friends out there on the mainland, but she usually doesn't bring them home. 
Morgan only wants people he can trust and can use. He takes Johnny's gun, calling it a stupid, dangerous toy, and then he demonstrates his own ability with the bow. Strength, skill, grace. A weapon for a man of culture. There's the usual gloating master villain speech. I've hunted antelope. I am so powerful, blah, blah, blah. But Morgan seems to like Johnny's sense of humor, and sees him as, at least, brave. Johnny is taken to a room to sleep. Morgan and Glenda have a brief moment alone, and it is clear that they don't really like each other all that much. And Johnny sleeps, or pretends to, in his full suit, holding a table leg as a club. He turns the lights off, and Morgan comes to... what? Visit him? Test him? Kill him? With his bow. But he can't see Johnny in the dark. And he says his respect grows. The next morning, Johnny watches as a second boat arrives on the island. It drops off two goons in suits. Johnny goes to check out the boat and search it, but is spotted by the captain of the first boat. Nice boat, he says. So effortlessly nonchalant. Vetch and Grote are the two goons, and Morgan introduces them to Allegro. Morgan knows that he was searching the boat, but also, newspaper reports of Johnny Rock killing a detective has reached Florida, which gives Allegro some extra cred with Morgan. They go to the mainland and to the races. And at the track, Morgan gives Allegro a package and fake ID as a doctor, and a story to use a phone to place a call. In the money room. While he makes the call, his package is swapped out with a strong box, and he leaves with Morgan and Glenda waiting for him. They immediately leave the track. Morgan has a meeting, so Johnny and Glenda go to dinner at a swanky joint. Glenda tells the story of how she met Morgan, and how their romantic relationship wound up becoming more businesslike, and then Johnny gets a malaria flare-up and needs to go to the hospital. And at the hospital, Schultz is waiting for him for a debrief. Morgan's deal is counterfeiting, and he launders the funny money at the racetrack. Schultz is worried about this missing $500 million in counterfeit money. It was a plan of the Japanese government to flood the U.S. with valueless currency right after the Pearl Harbor attack to destabilize the economy. And Johnny's mission gets more complicated. He needs to find out where Palm Island is located and radio that information to the Coast Guard. And he needs to get his gun back before Morgan learns that it is loaded with blanks. Morgan seems very suspicious of the malaria thing, and when Johnny tries to work the boat captain for info, the captain says not a word. That night, Johnny looks for his gun, but he finds Glenda, who comes on very strong. And then Morgan walks in with the captain, kind of spoiling the mood. Is she trying to get him murdered? Morgan sends Glenda off, and he wants to discuss a private matter. He explains that he's a bad loser, so Johnny had better not bang his wife. Message received. Johnny tries to get to the boat to send a message to Schultze via the Coast Guard, but Roy is hot on his trail. Johnny is the worst at sneaking. He gets caught every time. Why did they pick him for this mission? Criminal, escaped from prison war hero, reintegrated into society under deep cover. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Johnny sends the message, with an approximate location for the island. Schultze's impressed. Morgan is approached by the two goons again, and we have some problems. Morgan has been shorting the home office on the money swap deals. Morgan is ordered to go to the home office. Turns out he has the money. All of it. And he has it hidden. Goons draw guns on Morgan to kill him. Johnny intervenes, disarming one, and Morgan uses his bow to kill both goons. 
With all this having gone on, the plan is now to evacuate the island, and Johnny loads the boat with important documents. I really see about Columbia not having the big star power of the other studios. Everyone is fine in this, but no one is captivating me. Especially Nina Fosh. She is like a bargain basement Elizabeth Scott. All I want is Elizabeth Scott playing this role. She'd be so much better. Glinda tells Johnny about a cave where the money is, and he makes his move for it. And at that critical moment, Morgan learns that Johnny's gun is loaded with blanks, which means, wait a minute, he didn't kill a cop after all. In the cave, Johnny and Roy come to blows over the money. This fight has been a long while coming. They've hated each other from the moment they met. Johnny locks Roy in the cave, but then an arrow flies by and Morgan is on the hunt. And the T-men are racing to the island. And the hunt is on, and the race is on. And now we get the most dangerous game. Yeah, there's a lot of that in this tale. In this character, anyway. Morgan corners Johnny and gets ready for the kill. Glenda shows up and spoils his shot. Johnny returns to save Glenda from Morgan's wrath and punches him off a cliff into the rocks below. Johnny tries to send Glenda so she doesn't get arrested, but she doesn't want to leave without him and stays with him as the agents arrive. Schultz is super happy with how everything worked out, and he says he'll put in a good word for them both with the proper authorities. And... that's the end. And that movie just kind of... ended. Bad guys are all dead. Except the home office masterminds. Johnny's safe. Johnny totally going back to jail. The end. All right. All right. Let's pro and con this. Okay, my pros. Number one, this is a competently acted film. Although all the characters might have been drawn a little broadly, even simplistically. There's not a lot of nuance in any of the performances, but that works fine in this film. The movie's very compact, telling its story in a very straightforward manner, and the lack of shades of grey in this film noir give it a bit of naive charm. Not every film has to be deep and meaningful. Sometimes they can just tell fun stories in a light way. And that's what this is, or at least tried to be. Number two, the story had some really neat plot hooks. The whole idea of the counterfeit money being used to destroy the U.S. economy in the wake of the Pearl Harbor attack, that was a really cool addition to the mythology of World War II, and that idea alone could have made for a great speculative history kind of narrative. Likewise, the tale of a florist who became a gangster, who went to jail, escaped, became a war hero, returned to regular society and lived a secret life, that alone was a good hook. Or the weird reclusive criminal who is also a big game hunter and money launderer and highly cultured. There's just a lot of neat things in this film, several of them good enough by themselves to be the premise of a film. Admittedly, the movie never achieves the lofty goal of actually being the sum of its narrative parts. But the parts themselves are quite interesting. And building on that, my third pro, I'm not sure how it came to pass that the climactic seam of this film was cribbed right from the most dangerous game. The reclusive master hunter pursuing a clever and resourceful man leading to a moment where the hunter becomes the prey and falls to his quarry. Hey, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Fair enough. My cons. This is another one of those films that I feel could have benefited from a few extra scenes. And about 20 minutes more of runtime just to flesh out the story a bit, even showing rather than telling the story of Johnny's a hoodlum, then a jailbird, then a war hero. That tale definitely deserved the show treatment, as opposed to the tell cop-out. Number two, the ending as well comes far too quickly. A few stray arrow shots, a punch in the face, and some smiling treasury men are all we get to close off this tale. 
I think the audience is brought along enough to be rooting for Johnny, if not for Glenda, who probably does deserve jail time. And it would be nice to see what his final fate was, as opposed to just, maybe a good word will be put in for him. Johnny seems resigned to his fate, but it doesn't mean that we should be. Sure, crime doesn't pay, but what about valor and heroism? Number three, I'm going to go there. I didn't like George Raft all that much. As I said, he did a fine job of the acting stuff, but while I could appreciate that, I just couldn't enjoy him. All I could think about was this guy that turned down all those roles Bogart wound up taking, and that's made even worse by thinking how much worse those films would have been with him in them. Raft is competent, but he's just kind of there. He's not particularly expressive, he's not especially handsome, he's not really intense, and he's really short, like distractingly short, Alan Ladd short. I'm not really interested in seeing him in another film, and I'm glad for the films I haven't seen him in. I realize that the world of the late 1940s was a very different place, but I legitimately wonder that if there were movie lovers back then waiting on tenterhooks for the next George Raft film to hit the local cinema, I just can't see it. And is this a watch for you? Yeah, for sure it is. I think my cons might be a little more negative than my pros are positive, but overall, I was into this movie. It's not the worst film noir I've ever seen, and it does just enough right to keep the viewer hooked. It's a watch for me. You're up. Okay, so my pros. One. The characters. There were some pretty interesting characters in this. Johnny Allegro is literally a guy who is a criminal, who then escaped from prison then became a freaking war hero, and then ended up as a florist in a hotel? If that's not one of the coolest backstories for a character ever, then I don't know what is. And Valen was a really interesting guy as well. I would have liked to see more from these characters. Like, some flashbacks from their past would have been nice. 2. The House on the Island This was just a really cool place, and I loved the set and the surrounding forest. The house was big and all the rooms were pretty, especially that study room. It was a great set, and I loved how it had the glass doors that opened onto the back little sitting area outside. Three, the plot. It was just really cool. There was a lot going on in this film, and there was a lot of interesting ideas going around. But, I feel like each idea would have been fine as a standalone film, instead of all of them being shoved into one movie. Like, the idea that a huge stash of counterfeit US currency was flooding into the country was interesting. But when it was put into this film, the money just ends up at a racing track, and just... that's the last we ever hear of it. But the idea itself was cool, and could have been expanded and made into a cool film all on its own. My cons. 1. The casting. I mean, it was fine. They were fine. But no one really stood out, you know? Everyone was just fine, without there being someone to make you go, Hey, that guy's pretty good. Nothing was particularly wrong with the performances, but I think that the film would have been better if it had been cast with different actors. Specifically, I think Elizabeth Scott absolutely should have been Glenda. Whenever I was watching her in the film, I couldn't stop thinking about how much I wanted her to be played by Elizabeth Scott instead of Nina Fosh. 2. The characters. They weren't very... layered? Some of them were, 
but others had something about them that was pretty interesting, but they were kind of bland, I guess. I'm not sure if that's the best way to describe it, but still. And they were super repetitive. So maybe they were just a bit one note? I honestly lost count of how many times Valen told Allegro that Roy, the boat captain, doesn't trust you and neither do I. At one point, I'm pretty sure he said it twice in one conversation. 3. The length. This really needed to be longer. I've mentioned a few times that there were some really interesting ideas in this that would have made fine movies on their own, but I also think that what was in this film needed more time to be really fleshed out and explored more. More time would have also made the denouement better. Seriously, this is probably one of the worst ones I've ever seen. And overall, is this a watch or not for you? Watch, for sure. It's not going to do you any harm. Okay. Well, with all of that wrapped up in a neat little bow, that brings us to the end of another episode. What are your thoughts on Johnny Allegro? Is this your kind of film? Let us know in the comments, and be sure to let us know what you thought of this episode. And special thanks to Robin for requesting it from us. Uh, we hope you liked it. We'll be back next week, but with another listener request. And this is a film that will take us a bit out of our usual time range of 1930 to 1960. But this film was requested so adamantly, so passionately, that we could not say no. This will be exciting. And be sure to join us next week as we look at The Party, starring Peter Sellers. But until then, please feel free to spread the word about us. Maybe at work. Mm -hmm. Or at the store. Sure. Or on the internet. Yep. Name drop us. We don't mind. Don't keep us all to yourself. We are not a secret. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like laundering counterfeit money as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from freefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs. 